And so we, we got all kinds of things happening with this Jerusalem crime story. Um, and so we're in week four, and I'm calling this one the twist that nobody expected. Thanks. Because I love a movie with a twist. Okay, I love a movie with a twist. Okay, whether it's Empire Strikes Back, Luke, no, I am your father. Sorry, spoiler alert. Okay, so Empire Strikes Back, love it. Okay, Sixth Sense, come on, amazing. Okay, The Usual Suspects, okay, who is Kaiser Sose? The Final Minister. Okay, if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. Usual Suspects, Seven, oh my gosh, talk about a heart-wrenching ending. Okay, and I, I'm not spoiling any of these. Go check them out on Netflix. Yeah. Or Fight Club? Are you kidding? That ending is all I love a good twist ending. Movies are wonderful when they have a twist. The M. Night Shyamalan movies, great twist. At least they started out with a great twist. Then they just got bad. Okay? So, but I love movies with a twist. But you know what? Like in life, when life gives you a twist ending, it often comes along with some sadness. It often comes along with some tragedy. So as, as some of you know, my wife and I don't have any children. We tried for a lot of years, and we, and for, we, we waited about five years before we had kids. We wanted to try having kids, because um, we wanted to spend some time with a husband and wife, and so we started trying, and nothing was happening. So we did that for about a year or so, and then went, went to the doctor, did some tests, did some different rounds of tests and things, and, um, and still nothing. And imagine that. Okay, now, now, that was a, a surprise twist. That was not what I expected when I got married. I was expecting mom, dad, two kids, white picket fence, pretty much what every white person expects. <laughs> I was expecting mom, dad, eight kids, no. <laughs> But talk about a twist in my life, because that was not what I was expecting. So then we go to the doctors, and they run a bunch of tests, and it turns out that I can't have kids. Now there's a twist ending. There's something I did not expect. I don't think either of us expect. We, we expect, you know, you take some hormones and everything goes, everything, the, the pipes start flowing and everything's good. <laughs> not so much. Turns out I can't have kids. And so all of a sudden, I got really angry. And I spent a while really resentful. Because this wasn't the ending I expected. This wasn't the ending I thought I deserved. And I got really resentful at God. Really kind of angry at life. And especially angry at my long friends who just pop out kids one after another. We had, we had one couple we used to joke, like, they could just look across the room at each other and she'd get pregnant. <laughs> like, really? But all of a sudden, our story seemed to have a pretty sad ending. And the sense of building a family all of a sudden began to feel fairly hopeless. So what about you? Do you have a story that feels kind of hopeless? Maybe you've lived it. Maybe you're in the middle of it. But I think because life sometimes throws us stories that feel a little hopeless. And so maybe you're trying to get pregnant and nothing's happening. Or maybe, maybe you've got a spouse who's angry or controlling or jealous or violent and you don't think they'll ever change.
And you're beginning to lose hope of ever having that happy marriage that you thought you would have. Or maybe you have a family member and you got that call one day saying that they've been to the doctor and it doesn't look good. Maybe you got that call. Where are you feeling hopeless? I think it's important to be able to find out and to be able to, to, be able to kind of call out those places where we're feeling a little hopeless. Maybe you lose your job and it just happens to coincide like you, you just get that new car or you're, you're getting really excited because you can finally get, afford enough to get a new house, move out of the apartment, move out of mom's house and you get really excited and you lose your job. And all that excitement just gets shattered to the ground. Or maybe you just are tired of fighting with your parents. And you just think they will never understand me. They will never understand my values. They will never understand what I want in my life, in my career. Because they just, you're, you're 29 and still unmarried and they think you're hopeless. And you hear it every day, you should get married, you should get married. So what feels hopeless to you? What do you do with that? You know, it's really interesting, the Gospel of Mark. And Mark ends his Gospel in a very unusual way. In fact, totally different than the three other Gospels. It's totally different. And in fact, it feels a little bleak. Even, believe it or not, a little hopeless. In fact, Mark isn't the Gospel you normally hear, the story you hear told on Easter. Because it's, it's a little different than the other stories. It's a little different than the story you might think you know. So when I say there's a twist that nobody expected, you, you, you might be sitting back saying, okay, it's Easter. Okay, I know, like Jesus died and he rose from the dead. That's the twist. <laughs> no, it's not. What if there's another twist? Mark actually gives us another twist in the story. Not just the Easter rose, or that Jesus rose from the dead. There's another twist that nobody expected. But before we get to that, I want to give a, a little update, a little summary of the story so far. Okay? Jesus was arrested. He was betrayed by one of his friends, one of his disciples, Judas, one of his 12 followers. He was betrayed by Judas, basically turned into the folks who wanted to kill him. Okay? Which happened to be Caiaphas, which was the Jewish high priest. He was the, basically the most powerful Jewish leader in the area, religious leader. So Caiaphas sent some soldiers based on what Judas told him to arrest Jesus. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, got all the other high priests to put him on trial. They, they had their witnesses lie, trump up charges. And he was found guilty of being, of claiming to be the Son of God. And the great irony in that arrest is he was actually the Son of God. So then Caiaphas sent him over to Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the head Roman governor of the region. He was the head guy in charge of that region. He was the most powerful person there. Because the, the Jews had to have the Romans put him to death. The Jews could not put him to death. So the Romans tried him and found him guilty as well. Found him, and, and so Pilate tried him in, in kind of this mock people court. And he was found guilty 
of being the king of the Jews. So he, and he was sentenced to death. He was executed by the most brutal form of execution the Romans had, which was crucifixion. Bloody, horrible. If you've ever watched a Jesus movie, you know what I'm talking about. It literally was the worst way that a person could be executed. And at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, and he died. That's where our story picks up. Because before Jesus could get buried, the Jews had a ceremonial washing that they did of a dead body. Um, Muslims have something similar. It's a ceremonial cleansing of the body before they're buried. And so that's what, that's what they had here. Because normally, a person who was crucified was actually literally just thrown in a pit. It was called a common grave, because normally they were criminals. And so they, they weren't given a proper burial, and they were thrown in a pit. But there was a guy who was a part of Caiaphas's leading religious council, and he didn't want that to happen. Because he was a believer in Jesus. His name was Joseph. We'll call him Joe. Okay, so that's where this story is going to start out. It's going to start out with Joe asking for Jesus' body. So this is in Mark 15. If you like to follow along, you can follow along on your phone or your Bible. This is Mark 15, starting with verse 43. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. Okay, well, we got to pause here. Okay? It was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was a day of rest, of non-work for the Jews. So the Sabbath was Saturday. Technically, it was Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. And Jews were, according to Scripture, weren't allowed to do any work. So they had to prepare. You know, they, they had to meal prep. So they broke up all their Tupperwares. They, they cooked meals for the day, all on Saturday evening. They put it in their fridge, no. But, but that was, they, they meal prepped. Okay? That was preparation day. Here we go. Um, so as the evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, so that's the ruling council of Caiaphas, the Jewish ruling council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's a great phrase to say that, one, he was a devout Jew. He was a good God, Yahweh-believing Jew. But it also implied that he was probably a believer in Jesus. So who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Okay, now this is unusual. This is not how it normally operated. Because normally, people who were crucified got thrown into a common grave, which is just a giant pit. But Joseph of Arimathea wanted to honor Jesus. So he asked Pilate for the body. Now notice how it says he boldly asked for the body. The reason is, this is a guy who was just executed. And here is a rich, powerful religious leader saying, I would like to care for his body. That's a, that's a gutsy move. Because he risked losing his position. Heck, he risked getting arrested himself. And so Joseph of Arimathea took a bold move. He said, I, I'm going to ask for Jesus' body. Because I want to give it a proper burial. Okay. Next, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Somebody in the centurion, okay, one of the soldiers, 
Somebody in the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. Now, notice this is the twist that nobody expected. Pilate did not expect Jesus to already be dead. Because here's the thing. Crucifixion typically took about two to three days because they just hung him up there and they let him die over a matter of many days. So it had only been, it had been less than three hours. Actually, it had been a total of about six hours on Friday. Um, and Jesus, by all Roman standards, Jesus should have died by now. So Pilate was like, what? He's dead already? So he asked the soldier in charge, the centurion, hey, hey, Major, is that Jesus guy, is that he actually dead already? Oh, okay. And gave him his body. Okay? So there was the first twist that Pilate didn't expect. Pilate didn't expect that he would already be dead. Let's continue. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen, some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Okay, so we, we got some Jewish burial practices we need to hit pretty quickly here. So Jewish burial practices. So first, there was this washing ceremony. And one, it was to honor the dead person. And two, it was to prepare them for burial. Because the Jews didn't embalm um, dead bodies like, like we do here in America. Um, so they had this process that involved washing. It also involved some spices, some herbs and spices. Go all Kentucky Fried Chicken on it. Okay. <laughs> Disrespectful to design. But they used some spices. In fact, 75 pounds of spices. Because that, you, dead bodies do not smell very good after a very short period of time. You throw on 75 pounds of spices, doesn't smell too bad. Okay? And then, they, so they, they lathered the body in all these spices and then wrapped it really tightly in white linen. Okay? Um, and, that, and that, so kind of a picture of mummy. That's kind of what it would look like, what Jesus would have looked like at this point. Incidentally, any of you kind of religious historical history folks, if you haven't heard of the Shroud of Turin, that's actually claimed to be the cloth that was wrapped over Jesus' head, because there was a separate linen cloth that went over the head, and then left an impression of these herbs the, the, and the sweat and all of that, the water on this cloth. And by the way, it's probably not true, okay? It's probably a fake. So, so if you're all into the trap turret, sorry, buddy, okay? But, but so Joseph of Arimathea is doing all of this. And it's also very likely that he had some of the women followers of Jesus who were there at the crucifixion. They were very likely helping them. That's something that they would have done, uh, culturally speaking. Um, so there they are preparing Jesus' body. Okay? So clearly, Joe, and most likely the women if they were there, they did not expect that Jesus was anything but dead. You do not do this to someone who you think is going to come back. They were absolutely convinced without a doubt that Jesus was dead. That's why they're doing this. Okay? So then, then so after Jesus was buried, or prepared, he had to be buried. And this, all of this had to happen really quickly because Jesus died at 3 o'clock on Friday and Sabbath started at 6 o'clock on Friday. They had three hours to do all of this. So imagine, this is kind of a mad rush to get all of this done by the Sabbath so they could stop and not work to honor God's law on the Sabbath. Okay? So, so Joe, Joseph of Arimathea, he also had a tomb. 
And because he was wealthy, he had a really good tomb. This was actually one cut out in a rock. I've got a picture of it here, so you can kind of see what this might look like. Okay? This, this was a wealthy person's burial. Most people were buried in the fields. The really poor people or the criminals were sometimes buried in a common grave. But particularly wealthy people actually had a hole cut out in the stone. This is, this is equivalent if you've ever been to a cemetery and seen the gigantic buildings, like the mausoleum-type buildings. That's what this would have been. You know, you see that, you're like, man, they were loaded. <laughs> That's what someone would have said about this one. Okay? Man, this guy's loaded. And because they don't have hinged doors on these things, they have giant rocks. And so the way you seal up a tomb is you drop one of these giant rocks into a little, um, little ledge, and it goes, you roll, roll, thunk. Okay? And it would take like three or four guys to move one of these things, because obviously that's a big rock. And that's how you seal up the tomb until the next person dies. Okay? So, so that's about what it would have looked like. And they were rushing during these three hours to get Jesus into this honorable grave. Because they wanted to give Jesus a good burial. They loved him dearly. And they wanted to give him a great burial. Not just a, not just a common grave, not a pit in the ground, not even a grave in a field. But a, a kind of a king's burial. That's sort of what this, this was a burial of royalty. Because only rich people got this good of a tomb. Okay, let's continue with the story. So all of this is happening Friday. Here we go. When Sabbath was over, that means Saturday at 6 p.m. And so fast forward 24 hours. We, we, there's nothing in the scriptures about what happened Saturday. Who knows what the people did. Fast forward 24 hours. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome uh, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So here are some of the women, the very faithful, committed followers of Jesus, who were there at crucifixion, and they wanted to go to the grave to anoint. And this is because he, Jesus had already been prepared for burial. This was probably just out of devotion and love. This was out of sorrow. This was out of mourning. They, so they wanted to go and make this, this statement of, I love you, Jesus. And I miss you. So they went, they went to the tomb. And just to tell you how, what a state of mind they were in, how distraught, how distressed they were, they forgot one big thing. Let's continue. Very early on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday morning. So Saturday night, they bought the, the spices. Sunday morning, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? <laughs> I always, I always smile a little bit at that one because they're planning all of this and then they forget one thing. Oh, there's a, like a 300 pound rock in the middle of this door and we're like three women. <laughs> what are we going to do? But that just showed how distraught they are. They were distraught because they believed without a doubt Jesus was dead and gone. They completely forgot there was a gigantic rock in the door. And I can imagine them walking and be like, Uh, who's going to move the rock? Girls? What are we? Okay. That's kind of what happened. And yeah, you can see them like, but, but what are we going to do? Okay? Who's going to move the stone away? Let's continue. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, 
have been rolled away. And now, for the first time in this entire Jerusalem crime story, God intervenes. God steps in and he answers their question. Who will roll the stone away? God says, I will. God intervenes. Let's continue. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now, this is a pretty natural response to a guy, and notice he's in the tomb. <laughs> that was a sealed tomb. Young dudes in white don't hang out in sealed tombs. <laughs> that's, that's not the place in Jerusalem. Okay? Except if they're an angel from God with a rare, very important message. They saw this young man dressed in white. And he says, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, which means of Nazareth. That's where he grew up. Jesus of Nazareth. Who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See? That's where they're leaving. And you can see a point right there. They're like, yeah, that's where they're leaving. And there it is. The culmination of 16 chapters of Mark, right there. He has risen. He is not here. The culmination of the entire story, the apex, the climax of this entire drama. He has risen. He is not here. Now there's a twist ending for these ladies. They did not expect this. Everything in the story points to they were convinced without a doubt that Jesus was dead and gone. Fush. But God throws them a twist. And this is a twist that none of them expected. Now, it's a twist we kind of know. If, even if you've never been around church, you've probably heard the whole Jesus came back to life on Easter thing. Okay? But that's not the only twist that Mark gives us. Because we already know kind of this end of the story, but you might not know Mark's end of the story. Let's continue. Okay? So, so this angel messenger says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you in Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay, okay. This, this is getting exciting. This is getting really good. So the angel is saying, go to Galilee. Now Galilee is important because that was kind of Jesus' home base. Most of his ministry happened in Galilee. Okay? Where, where everything the last few days happened was Jerusalem. Okay? Now, he's saying go back to Galilee. Go back to your home base. Because Jesus is going ahead of you and he'll meet you there. You're like, what? This is incredible. This is amazing. Okay? Th this is it. So the angel tells him to go, go and meet up with Jesus. Okay? And here was, the, here was the women's response. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. That is actually the end of the Gospel of Mark. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Nope. But what about 
about, if you've been around church, you probably, but what about Jesus appearing to them and Thomas doubting and believing and all that? Mark doesn't include any of that. Mark ends with some women scared and silent. Like, what? Really? That's the end of the story? No, 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 come on, come on. Mark, did, did you like, did you forget something here? Surely there's gotta be more than that. Surely the greatest story ever told doesn't end like that. That's not the Easter story I came to church expecting. <laughs> A bunch of women scared and silent. But that's the story that Mark tells. Now, this, it feels so incomplete, doesn't it? It feels so even dark. In fact, it feels so incomplete that some scholars believe we've actually lost the last page of the book of Mark. Or they, they were scrolled back then. Okay? But it's kind of like, like, some, like the last page of a book falling out and you don't know that the butler did it. So some scholars actually believe that. that some scholars believe this is so incomplete there had to be another scroll. There had to be something else because this, this is wrong. And it's pretty dark as well, isn't it? Where's the happy Easter story of people believing and Jesus commissioning, send people off and Jesus raises up in the clouds, trumpets playing and all that. Where's the happy ending? This doesn't appear to be a happy ending. In fact, it feels so dark that 100, 200 years after Mark wrote the gospel, a religious scribe, which were the guys who, who translated, not translated, but wrote, made copies of the, the Gospels, because they didn't have printing presses, so literally it was just a dude writing, and like, copy line by line, here you go, copy line by line, okay, that's a scribe. So it's at, one of the other explanations is that about 100, 200 years later, a scribe actually wrote an ending to the book of Mark. That's why if you ever open up a Bible, uh, pull it up on your phone, you're, you might see verses 9 through 20. You'll see some more verses, but unfortunately, all the evidence says that those were not original. All the literary evidence points to that those were added 1 to 200 years later. So what do we do? What do we do with some scared, silent women? How is this an Easter story of good news? Well, I think there are two things. I, so I believe uh, among all the debate among the scholars, I believe this is exactly how Mark wanted to end the book. This is no accident. Okay? One, because I believe that the Bible we have today is exactly the Bible God wants his followers to have. Okay? A little theology, that's called the sufficiency of Scripture. I firmly believe in that. The second reason I believe is it actually can make sense. Because here's what Mark's ending does. Mark's ending does two things for us. This seemingly bleak, depressing, hopeless ending does two things. First, it tells us that Jesus' resurrection turns a hopeless end into an endless hope. This story feels like a hopeless end, doesn't it? But the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
turns a hopeless end into an endless hope. And that should be good news if you're living a story that feels a little hopeless. That should be good news if you've given up. That should be good news if you're at the end of your wits. Because what it says is that Jesus' resurrection turns a hopeless end into an endless hope. Now don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean you're gonna get what you want. We still don't have kids. God chose not to change that. The power of Jesus' resurrection didn't give us kids, but it transformed our hearts over a number of years. It transformed the way we are lives, the way that before I look at our lives and our values. It transformed the way we spend our money, we use our house. And it has brought us to a point, the power of the resurrection has brought us to a point where we can say, we can say without a doubt, that God has blessed us by not giving us kids. That's turning a hopeless end into endless hope. Mm. I still get sad sometimes. Especially in those, those daddy-daughter commercials. If you ever watch some TV with me and one of those comes on, just grab the Kleenex. <laughs> I get a little sad. Mm. Knowing that won't really be a part of my life experience. But the power of resurrection turned what was a hopeless end of our desire to get pregnant into an endless hope that there is more. And that's what was really important. That's, I think, one of the reasons why Mark ended the story like this. Because he needs us to know that. He needed his disciples to know that. He needs you to know that. So that's the first reason. But I think there's a second reason. And I think, and this reason is kind of why this makes a great Easter story. Makes a great Easter story. Because Mark's ending invites, it even demands a response. This ending just ends, and I believe that it, it cries out for an answer. It cries out for an ending. But Mark doesn't give that ending. You know what he does? He calls us to end that story. You see, the women didn't stay scared and silent. The women didn't stay bewildered. They grew faithful. They grew bold. And they became part of a group of people that changed the course of human history. See, they didn't stay. They completed that story. And the people who heard this gospel for the first time, back, back within the, the, uh, around 60, 70 AD, when the people who heard the story knew that was how the women responded. They knew the end. But Mark ended so abruptly, so uncomfortably, that he invites, he even demands a response. That is an invitation to meet Jesus in Galilee. Hmm. It was the invitation to the women, and it's the invitation to you. 
to meet Jesus in Galilee. Go. He's going to go ahead of you. You're not abandoned. You're not by yourself. He's going to go ahead of you and he's going to be there when you get there. So this risen Lord, this risen Jesus Christ who conquered death and there is nothing more fatal or final than death. But that Jesus is waiting for you. He's going to be there and he's waiting for you. And that's kind of, I, so I've sort of fallen in love with the ending of Mark in all of its weirdness. I kind of like it because it invites us to finish the story. It invites you to finish the story. These women became bold believers and followers of Jesus Christ. How will you respond to that young man dressed in white inside a sealed tomb saying Jesus Christ is risen he is not here. Go meet him. Now, some of you might be a little afraid and bewildered. That's okay. Mark was okay with the women being afraid and bewildered. So I think God's okay with that. But God desires to bring you out of fear. God desires to bring you out of hopelessness. God desires to bring you out of despair. I say, go meet him. Go meet Jesus. He's waiting for you. And that's a big call. That's an important call. That's a call that defines eternity. It's a call, it's an invitation that defines a life but it's also an invitation that defines an eternity. Now notice that, that, that the young man dressed in white did not say, go to church. He did not say, be a better person. No, he did not say, be a good son or daughter. Pray more, read your Bible. That's not what he said. He said, go meet Jesus. And some of you, some of you have spent a lot of energy doing everything but meeting Jesus. And all those other things are good. Don't get me wrong. I believe in church. I pastor a church. I like it. That's an important piece. And praying and reading your Bible, that's important. But the first call, the first call to your heart is go meet Jesus. The rest of the stuff will fall into place. That's how Mark's gospel ends, as the invitation he's giving everyone. Go meet Jesus. Join me in prayer.